The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis 24, 1 through 67. So I will be reading a selection of verses from the passage. It says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear to the Lord, make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, at the time when women would go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one in whom you have appointed for your master Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who had been born to Bethel, the son of Milcai, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out from, with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord, and she, will quick, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So quickly she emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew, all for, she drew for all of his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had pro- prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethel, the son of Micah, whom she bore to Naor. She said, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has, not let me, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. May God bless the reading of his word.
Thank you, Jen. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you with uh, all kinds of needs this morning. But we believe that by your spirit and through your word, that you can minister to every need that we have, Lord. So please do that. And above all, draw us into a deeper relationship with you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. During the very first week of my freshman year at college, I had a rather memorable social interaction. Uh, I had just arrived on campus a few days prior to this and was uh, just trying to make the most of my college experience. I was very eager to do that. And so for me, that included getting a girlfriend. And that was, that was my goal. And so I attended this uh, outdoor, I guess, movie night that they had for incoming freshmen. And I ended up hanging out with uh, two guys that I had, had met shortly before that. And then also we were hanging out with three girls. So the, the six of us. And I forget exactly how the conversation unfolded, but somehow we got to talking about the general subject of marriage and finding a spouse and uh, just talking about our future uh, thoughts in a very lighthearted way. And looking back, this probably wasn't the best thing to say, but I ended up telling the group that my goal was to find a girl whose birthday was on Valentine's Day, and then marry her on that same day, so it would just be one day of the whole year for, for me to remember, I could keep track of it better. It's one of those things that might sound okay like in your mind <laughs> until you actually say it. And uh, also, in addition to that, little did I know, but one of those girls, her birthday was on Valentine's That's right. I mean, what are the chances? Come on. Three and 365, I guess, but, and she, it turned out, was not very impressed uh, by my, my ambitions and uh, was actually rather offended because, as she later said to another of the guys, she thought it was pretty lazy, which, yeah, she might have a point there, right? So needless to say, my uh, efforts at getting a girlfriend in college did not get off to a very good start. We might say that God did not bless that particular endeavor. Yet here in Genesis 24, we read about an endeavor that God does bless. God blesses the endeavor of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac. So that's the main idea of this passage. God blesses the endeavor of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac. And as we look at the way Abraham's servant conducts himself in this passage... There are some timeless principles that we can glean that are related not just to the endeavor of finding a spouse, but to all kinds of endeavors. You know, I'm sure we'd all like God to bless various endeavors that we undertake, whether it's getting a job or earning a promotion or purchasing a home or raising a family or saving for retirement or whatever other kinds of endeavors people often seek to do. Our desire is for God to bless these things. And we find some valuable principles for that in this passage, three of which I would especially 
like to mention. So three principles for experiencing God's blessing in our endeavors, and we'll see what those are as we work our way through the passage. The story begins with Abraham giving his servant an important assignment in verses 2 through 4. It says, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thought, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, there are different theories about why exactly Abraham had the servant put his hand under his thigh. I mean, it kind of sounds a little awkward to me. But one thing, at least, is clear about this act. It symbolizes that this is a very solemn oath. And Abraham makes the servant swear that he won't get a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. One reason for that is probably that back in Genesis 9.25, Noah had cursed Canaan and his descendants. And also, the Canaanites were notoriously wicked. So Abraham was probably thinking that a Canaanite wife would draw his son Isaac away from the Lord. We're then told in verses 5 through 8, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So Abraham's adamant that whatever the servant does, he mustn't under any circumstances take Isaac back to the land Abraham originally came from uh, in Mesopotamia. God had called Abraham out of that land and into the land of Canaan. And he had promised him, as he says here, to your offspring I will give this land, speaking of Canaan. So that's where Abraham's supposed to be. And Abraham is committed to obeying God's instructions about that. So that's the first principle for, observe, for experiencing God's blessing in our endeavors, is to walk in obedience to his instructions. It's pretty simple, right? Don't expect God to bless your disobedience. Right? Don't expect him to bless what you're trying to do if you're living in a way that's contrary to what he's clearly revealed about his will in the pages of Scripture. So, you know, for example, if you're living in an immoral relationship, don't expect God to bless that relationship. If you're not glorifying God with the wealth he's given you and being a good steward of that, then don't expect God to bless you financially. If you're habitually lying to your employer or acting deceptively at work in any way, of course, don't expect God to bless your career. If we want to experience God's blessing, we have to be walking in obedience to his instructions. 
And moving forward in the passage, the story continues in verses 10 through 14. It says, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you've appointed for your servant Isaac. So before the servant talks to anyone in the city, he first prays for both success and guidance. And that's the second principle for us to observe. If we want to experience God's blessing in an endeavor, then we have to immerse that endeavor in prayer. And we should do that at the very beginning as our first instinct rather than as our last resort. Notice how the servant doesn't begin by looking for a wife for Isaac and then pray only when his initial efforts at finding a suitable woman prove unsuccessful. No, the, he prays before he even starts looking. And that's what prayer should be for us as well. Not like the spare tire that we keep in our vehicle just in case we end up needing it or in case there's an emergency and we find ourselves without other options. Rather, it should be the first and most foundational element of anything we set out to do. Because think about what we're believing when we don't pray. Even if we never say these things out loud, we're nevertheless believing inwardly that we're what, strong enough to see things through, clever enough to figure things out, and capable enough to make things happen, apart from God's power and without his wisdom. So when you think about it, prayerlessness is actually remarkably arrogant. The fact is that we need God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 16, and 17, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. So the last thing we should want to do is trust in our own strength or rely on our own resources. Instead, in any endeavor, we should be relying on God every step of the way. And the litmus test for our reliance upon God is how much, what kind of a place we give in that endeavor to prayer, how much emphasis we place on prayer. And by the way, this is why you'll find in your bulletin this morning a prayer guide for our church's oil change event this coming Saturday. Right? Why would we expect God to bless this outreach event that we're doing 
apart from prayer. And the same goes for our church as a whole. Like, why would we expect God to bless our church's ministry? This is why, of course, we have a, a prayer gathering right here at the church building every Wednesday from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m., right? It's because prayer isn't an afterthought for us. Rather, it's an essential component of our ministry. And as we can see in the subsequent verses of Genesis 24, God answers prayer, right? He answers the prayer of Abraham's servant. Look at verses 15 through 20. Before uh, the, the servant had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. So the servant had prayed that God would send a woman who would not only give him a drink, but would even of her own initiative offer to water his camels as well. And just so you know, watering these camels was uh, no easy task. Um, scholars tell us, based on how many times she would have had to uh, lower the bucket into the well to draw water for each camel, as well as how long it would take a camel to drink, um, scholars tell us that watering these 10 camels would take anywhere between one and a half and two hours. Right? So this wasn't some quick like five-minute task, hey, let me do this real quick. Now, this was like a considerable thing for her to do. Yet Rebecca volunteers to do it. And that is a very clear answer to the servant's prayer. However, in order for the prayer to be completely answered, it couldn't just be any woman who volunteered to do this. It would have to be a woman from Abraham's extended family. Because if you remember back to the beginning of the chapter, that's the, the kind of woman that Abraham had instructed his servant to find. Um, by the way, the idea of marrying someone in your extended family was more accepted uh, back in ancient times than it is today uh, for several reasons. Um, one of them being that there weren't as many genetic mutations and things like that. So uh, this wasn't a weird thing back then. Um, and so this woman would have to be a member of Abraham's extended family. And that's why verse 21 says that even while Rebekah was in the process of watering the camels, the servant was still, even at that point, wondering, quote, whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. We then learn in the subsequent verses that, incredibly, Rebekah was indeed a relative of Abraham. Specifically, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, whatever that's called. And so that's pretty remarkable, right? 
Like, what are the chances, first of all, that the woman he encounters at the well would offer to draw water not just for him, but for the camels as well? And then on top of that, like, what are the chances that that same woman would just so happen to be a member of Abraham's extended family? So no wonder the servant exclaims in verse 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. Brothers and sisters, we serve an awesome God and a God who answers prayer. Yet as we consider the conduct of Abraham's servant throughout this chapter, it's very apparent that he didn't just have some sort of let go and let God mentality. He didn't approach the endeavor as if it were all on God to make it happen apart from any human agency, but rather understood that he himself had a role to play and therefore that he needed to employ some practical wisdom. Backing up a bit in the passage to verse 10, the servant's first wise decision was to take along plenty of gifts on his journey. You know, if you are going to travel to a distant land in order to try to convince a woman you've never met to come back with you in order to marry a man she's never met, I mean, I'm just saying, you'd better have some really good gifts. And Abraham's servant understands that. And so he loads up 10 camels with all kinds of precious pieces of jewelry and other treasures. He also demonstrates wisdom in what he looks for in the woman he's seeking. When the servant asks God to provide a a woman who will give him not only a drink for himself, but also for his camels, that prayer had a dual function. Not only was it designed to make it clear which woman he should pay particular attention to, it's also intended to result in him finding a woman who had a kind spirit and who was generous and very hardworking. So the third principle for experiencing God's blessing in our endeavors is to employ practical wisdom. Employ practical wisdom. Abraham's servant then continues to employ practical wisdom throughout the rest of this passage, especially in his interactions with Rebekah's family. Uh, Just to summarize that, since we didn't read it, uh, the, the servant skillfully navigates those interactions in order to convince her family to send Rebecca off with him back to Abraham so that she can be Isaac's bride. And when Rebecca's brother, Laban, who, as we'll see later in Genesis, ends up being a very devious and conniving individual, when he tries to convince Abraham's servant to delay his departure with Rebecca, the servant wisely resists Laban's suggestion in a very diplomatic way and succeeds in being sent off by Rebekah's family in a timely manner. He then successfully delivers Rebekah to Isaac so that the two of them can get married and live happily ever after. So throughout the entire chapter, Abraham's servant demonstrates exemplary uh, wisdom, discretion, social intelligence, and a focus on the task at hand. Likewise, if we want God's blessing in our endeavors, 
it's necessary for us to approach those endeavors with various elements of practical wisdom as well. You know, just as we discussed earlier, how we shouldn't expect God to bless disobedience, right? We also shouldn't expect him to bless laziness and sloppiness and foolish decisions that we make. So if you, you know, want to do well in school, it might be a good idea to study for that test. If you want to start a business, it might be a good idea to do some market research first. Or if you want to get a promotion at work, then you should probably work really hard and do everything you can to be good at what you do. And for guys specifically, if you're trying to kind of do what's happening here and find a wife, uh, I'm just saying it might not be a bad idea to give some attention to your personal appearance and hygiene, right? Um, I mean, at the very least, take a shower and put on some deodorant, <laughs> like every day. Uh, by the way, I've heard uh, that also works pretty well for married men who uh, like to enjoy certain aspects of their marriage on a regular basis. Just saying. And so those are three principles that we see here for experiencing God's blessing in our endeavors that I think are pretty clear here in Genesis 24. Walk in obedience to God's instructions, immerse the endeavor in prayer, and employ practical wisdom. Yet as we think about Genesis 24 as a whole, it would be a mistake to say that Abraham or his servant played the ultimate or even the primary role in bringing about the success of the endeavor. I mean, Abraham's servant definitely played a significant role in obtaining a wife for Isaac, but ultimately his role was an instrumental one. You may remember that we said the main idea of this passage is that God blesses the endeavor of Abraham's servant to find a wife for Isaac, right? The subject of that sentence is God He's the one who's ultimately responsible for the success of this endeavor. You know, it's interesting to observe that even though this is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis, right? 67 verses. We don't read about God saying anything. God never speaks. And yet he's mentioned no less than 20 times in this chapter. So the way we see God showing up here is that he sovereignly governs and supernaturally orchestrates all of the events that take place. The entire chapter from beginning to end has God's fingerprints all over it. We actually don't even have to look any further than the very first verse of the chapter to find an example of this. Right, verse 1 tells us that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Every good thing about Abraham's life was the direct result of God's blessing. So none of it had come about merely by chance or luck or even merely by Abraham's hard work or wisdom. It had all come to Abraham through God's sovereign hand blessing. And we can see that throughout the rest of the chapter as well. In verse 7, God, Abraham tells his servant that the Lord will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son. 
So the success of the endeavor was the result of the angel of the Lord going out ahead of Abraham's servant and preparing the way. Notice also what we're told uh, right after Abraham's servant arrives at the well and prays for God's blessing. Verse 15 says that before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So before Abraham's servant had even finished speaking the words of his prayer, God had already acted to answer that prayer and bring Rebekah to the well. I mean, that means, of course, that Rebekah had left her house for the well before the servant had even begun to pray. That's incredible. And we can trace this theme throughout the rest of the chapter as well. From Rebecca watering the camels to her just happening to be a member of Abraham's extended family to the way her own family sends her off so easily with their blessing. The entire story is written in a way that deliberately draws attention to God's sovereign hand. One commentator writes that, quote, there will be no miracle in this story, as we usually think of miracles, No rearrangement of molecules, no sun standing still, no healing or no river stopped up. Rather, God will bring about the acquiring of Isaac's bride through the normal events of life. The delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. And that's the way our lives work as well. Nothing that we encounter is random or the product of chance or luck or fate. It's all a part of the outworking of God's perfect plan and a manifestation of God's comprehensive sovereignty. I mean, that's just basic biblical teaching. This world is ruled not by chance or fate, but by a personal God. He's the one who sits on the throne of the universe. And as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There's no asterisk there, right? There's There's no exceptions to that. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means, of course, that God's at work in and through the largest events of our lives as well as in the smallest details. It's not like God simply shows up every once in a while and intervenes in a certain situation. He's at work in everything and through everything all the time. Theologians call this the doctrine of providence. John Piper defines God's providence as his purposeful sovereignty. Purposeful sovereignty. For God to be sovereign, uh, by the way, simply means that he's in control of everything and that nothing happens apart from his decree. Yet notice it's not just that God's sovereign. I mean, the doctrine of sovereignty is definitely a biblical doctrine, but the Bible actually goes beyond that. According to the scripture, God's not only 
sovereign, but also purposeful in that sovereignty. That's providence. On the macro level, this means that history isn't just some chaotic sequence of random events, but rather the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. In other words, history's going somewhere. It's not like we're all in some life raft, just adrift at sea, and at the mercy of wherever the currents happen to take us. Now, we're in a ship being propelled very deliberately to a specific destination and for a specific purpose. And I'll tell you that for me personally, guys, that is such a comfort. Especially, you know, when I think about the state of well, various things, well, including the state of our country right now. You know, to be candid with you, there are some times when I just look at the, the headlines on the news and everything that's happening in our country and just the moral freefall that it seems our society is in right now and the way our, even our civilization, in some respects at least, seems to be crumbling before our very eyes. Man, it's just depressing. You know, and I think about even certain prominent leaders who seem to be doing everything they can to undermine the values that made this country what it is. At times, one might even be tempted to think that they're deliberately trying to, uh, to, to run things off a cliff and to dismantle, I guess the word would be, what has been built piece by piece. And yet, and that can be depressing. And sometimes, if you think about it enough, that can even make you a little angry. And yet, what a comfort it is to remember that even now, God's accomplishing his purposes. Has the thought ever occurred to you that maybe God's allowing certain prominent leaders and political ideologies to accelerate this country's decline so that this country can be humbled and brought to its knees and thereby come to recognize our need for God So maybe God isn't working in spite of certain political leaders and other elites of society, but rather through those very people. Because he knows that this is what our country needs if we're ever going to turn to him. Maybe he knows that this is what's necessary in order for a a widespread spiritual awakening to take place. I don't know. I won't pretend to know the details of God's plan. But I do know that he's got a plan. And that everything we see around us is an essential and purposeful component of the unfolding of that plan. And of course, what's true of our country as a whole is also true of us individually. What a comfort. It is to know that everything that happens in our lives personally happens for a reason. Just as Abraham's servant encountering Rebekah at the well was anything but a chance encounter, 
we can be sure that every situation in which we find ourselves has been sovereignly ordained by a good God for a good purpose. Even though we might not be able to understand everything, we nevertheless know that it's all a part of God providentially working in our lives according to his perfect plan. God had a plan for Isaac in Genesis 24, and he has a plan for you as well. And every detail of every event along the way is part of the unfolding of that plan. And when we have that confidence, it enables us to do what Paul instructs us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 and give thanks in all circumstances. Keep in mind that those words weren't penned by someone who was young and idealistic and who perhaps hadn't yet lived long enough to really experience all of the discouragements and, and sufferings and difficulties that life can bring. Instead, those words were written by a man, if you know the Apostle Paul, I mean, in all likelihood, had suffered more than any of us in this room will ever suffer. Yet he still maintained that we should give thanks in all circumstances. How could he say that? Well, it's because he knew that a sovereign God sits on the throne of this universe and is providentially working at every moment and through every molecule to accomplish his glorious purposes. Yet you might still be wondering, how can we be sure that God really has our best interests at heart? You know, even if he is providentially working to accomplish his purposes, how can we be sure that those purposes are good and that they really are designed to promote our welfare? The answer is found in Romans 8.32. Speaking of God the Father, the Apostle Paul asks, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things. This is what's known as an argument from the greater to the lesser. The logic is that if God's already done the greater thing, why wouldn't he do the lesser thing as well? If he's already given us his own son, Jesus, to save us by dying on the cross, then why wouldn't he also give us every other blessing as well? So how can we be sure that God's for us and not against us? How can we be sure that his providential plans are for our good rather than for our harm? It's through the gospel. When we were condemned in our sins and helpless to save ourselves and thoroughly deserving of God's punishment, God sent his own son to die on the cross in our place to make atonement for our sins before subsequently rising from the dead. As Paul says, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
that supreme act of personal sacrifice is all the evidence we should ever need that God loves us and is committed to working for our welfare. He'll do whatever he needs to do to promote our welfare, even to the point of sending his own son to pay for our sins so that those who trust in him can have eternal life.